0: This audio presentation is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis.
1: Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the RAND Corporation media conference call on the second summit between President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong Un, scheduled to begin tomorrow in Vietnam. There are many expectations and issues surrounding this second summit, which our RAND researchers are looking forward to discussing on this call. My name is Korsheed Samad. Senior Media Relations Officer at RAND, and I am joined on the phone by my colleague, Lisa Sauters, Media Relations Officer, who is based in our Santa Monica office. Now we're going to be hearing brief statements from the following RAND researchers, who will then take your questions once the lines have been opened. Bruce Bennett is a RAND Senior International Defense Researcher specializing in Northeast Asian security issues. His research has addressed issues such as options for deterrence and defeat of North Korean nuclear weapons, future South Korean military force requirements, the Korean military balance, counters to North Korean chemical and biological weapon threats in Korea and Japan, Korean unification and potential Chinese intervention in Korean contingencies. Andrew Scobell is Iran's senior political scientist. His research focuses on China with special attention to China's policy toward the Korean Peninsula and China's relationships with North and South Korea. Naoko Aoki is a Stanton Lutheran Fellow at RAND. Her research interests include security issues in the Asia-Pacific region with a focus on North Korea, nuclear security policy, security cooperation, and the impact of domestic politics on international security policy. And with that, I turn it over to Bruce to uh, make a statement.
0: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be able to talk about uh, the upcoming summit meeting and uh, what might happen. I like to start, though, by talking about what I think could happen. I'm not so sure that it will, but I think it would be nice if President Trump could go in and start by saying Kim Jong-un, you know, in your New Year's address, which is for North Korea, their State of the Union address, you said you would no longer produce nuclear weapons. Now, we want to do exactly what you've been calling for. You keep calling for corresponding measures, and we'd love to do things to reward you for not producing these weapons, but in order to do that, I need to verify that that's the case. Therefore, I've organized two or three or five inspection teams that are prepared to go into North Korea starting next week or the week after, and they are ready to go to each of the production sites that we know about and the ones that uh, we don't know that you're going to be designating so that we can confirm that you have indeed stopped production and install monitoring devices to make sure that you're no longer producing over the longer term. And if you're prepared to do that, here are the things I'm prepared to do for you. Now, that would be a great way to start out because he's committed to this, not only in his New Year's address, but also in his April 27 Panmunjom agreement with the South Korean president last year part of which says that North and South Korea will fully implement all previous agreements and declarations. One of the previous declarations was the 1992 denuclearization declaration, in which the North and the South committed to not possess any nuclear weapons, any uranium enrichment or plutonium reprocessing capability, any production of nuclear weapons, any storage of nuclear weapons, any proliferation of nuclear weapons. These are commitments that the two countries have made. I think we need to follow up and say we don't need to be inducing Kim to get him to commit to give up his nuclear weapons. He's already done that. Um, What we need to do is to then get him to take the step to do it. To actually take actions which reduce the threat now I'm not going to be unrealistic I think it would be extreme to get that kind of outcome but it's still something I would like more likely there will be a focus on the Yongbyon nuclear facility but my worry there is North Korea has been telling their internal audience their elites that they're prepared to close Yongbyon because many of the facilities are old, worn out, and no longer usable, that they need to be cleaned up because of severe radiation problems. And certainly the defectors with whom I've talked suggest that the radiation problems at Yongbyon are severe. And, of course, the North Korean regime has been telling their elites we don't want to have to pay for cleaning this up. We want the Americans to pay for cleaning this up. So we're going to invite the Americans in. That's potentially interesting, but it's going to be a huge expense. And uh, if they do that, will they give up their new nuclear reactor, which is not old and ready to be torn down? Will they give up their uranium enrichment, which is required to run the new reactor? what is it exactly they're prepared to give up? These vague discussions of denuclearization without specifics need to be worked out and need to be pushed forward. So those are some of my initial thoughts, and uh, I'll let you hear from my colleagues.
1: Thank you very much, Bruce. That's very informative. Andrew, would you like to weigh in with some of your thoughts?
2: Sure. I'd like to make three points uh, First, what we've seen is uh, a season of summits over the last 12 months, and uh, that's four meetings uh, between uh, or summits between um, Kim Jong Un and uh, President Xi Jinping of China. Uh, There have been three summits uh, between uh, Kim Jong Un and uh, President uh, Moon of South of South Korea and by the end of this week there'll have been two summits between uh Kim and, and and President Trump. And what do we have to show for this? On the one hand there's been a, a very clear and significant decrease in tensions. And that's that that's a good thing. If you think back where we were just over 12 months ago, we weren't we weren't in a good place. People were talking about the 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 specter of of, uh, of 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 a possible uh, of a possible war in the Korean peninsula. So that's a good thing to de- decrease in tensions. But uh we ha- we haven't gone beyond that. And so I think that what that means is the expectations of uh, or the aspirations and hopes of what might happen this week in Hanoi, you know, are are, are, pr- are pretty high uh that uh, Something we need more tangible uh, results from all these uh, summits uh, so that's the first point. The second point uh, concerns uh, you know what does denuclearization mean and how important is it uh, to each uh, each key uh, party in in uh, uh, in this uh, in this issue and denuclearization uh, means Seems to mean something different to North Koreans than it does uh, to Americans uh, and and the international community. For many people, the North Korean nucle- the nuclear problem and denuclearization is specifically about getting North Korea to dismantle uh, uh, its its nuclear program. For North Koreans, it seems it's somewhat vague, but it seems to mean uh, something broader, including. Uh, uh, Including South, the whole Korean Peninsula, perhaps uh, Northeast Asia, and it, and involves the United States. Even though the United States hasn't had uh, uh, nuclear weapons on the on the Korean Peninsula for uh, for many years, and South Korea has no uh, no nuclear uh, uh, nuclear program. Uh, so getting being clear about what we mean by denuclearization uh, is, is a, is a significant, significant challenge. Also, in terms of priorities, while just about everyone on paper is committed to denuclearization, including, including North Korea, um, th- there are different priorities uh, where this stands. For example, for the U.S., it seems to have been, uh, for successive administrations, the most important issue uh, uh, where, where North Korea is concerned. For South Korea, it's important, uh, but they see, South Koreans seem tend to prioritize um, inter-Korean relations more than more, more than denuclearization. And for China, uh, while they they definitely believe that denuclearization is, is is important, China's historically been more concerned about stability on the Korean Peninsula. So from a Chinese perspective and a South Korean perspective, the fact, and, and sometimes uh, others, including uh, President Trump has indicated this, that you know the fact that North Korea is no longer testing, uh, that's maybe not good enough, uh, but satisfactory or acceptable for now. So priorities and definitions of, of denuclearization, uh, an important uh, issue that we shouldn't overlook. Lastly, as uh, as Bruce uh, was alluding to, the actual process of denuclearizing North Korea is not a not likely to be easy and and it's not going to be cheap and it's it's not going to be a short thing. It's going to take take a long time. So people talk about is there a model that that we should follow? Whether it's uh, some people talk about the. Uh, Libyan model or the South African model, and those can be helpful uh, to think about what is really involved here, but in, in a sense, it might be better to think about North Co- the denuclearization of North Korea as a, you know, a distinctive, maybe unique not the right word, but uh, uh, there are no comparable models. Uh, th- this is a, a distinctive problem. So maybe we should talk about the North Korean model, or perhaps even the Trump model, because President Trump's approach to this issue is has been rather uh, innovative and different uh, to previous uh, previous approaches. And especially if it works, uh, if it's successful moving forward, uh, then it it deserves its own label.
1: Well, thank you so much, Andrew. That is definitely a, a great way of 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 bringing the importance to the fact that this is a unique situation and needs unique solutions. And now we have Naoko Ayoki and she's going to make a statement. Thank you. Um, I'm. Uh, some of the points I'm going to make will be um, there will be overlaps with what Bruce and Andrew said, but I'd like to start off by um, talking about what I think are the two elements that would con- would be included in a favorable outcome for the Hanoi Summit. One is an agreement on a longer-term workable framework um, toward denuclearization and a narrowing of the gap between the two countries over what denuclearization means. The second includes concrete steps as both Andrew and um, Bruce have mentioned. Um, so. After the June summit in Singapore, which produced a joint statement that was very um, that was aspirational and very vague, it did bring down t- tensions, but it did not lead to substantive denuclearization steps by North Korea. So during the Hanoi summit, one of the things that I will be looking at is whether the two countries can actually agree to tangible steps towards that goal. Thank you so much. And now we're going to be joined by Michael Mazar, who's a senior political scientist at RAND. Mike, would you like to join in and make your statement? Uh,
3: So the only thing I would say is that uh, to sort of follow on the theme of what is potential success, um, just to be specific, I think one aspect is um, that there's been a fair amount of discussion that a centerpiece of an interim North Korean concession might be built around the Yongbyon nuclear facility. And what I'm gonna be looking for is whether there are um, concrete agreements that are not anywhere close to totally nuclearization, but represent something really tangible, that the United States can walk away from the talks and say, um, we have achieved at least an important step on the road to denuclearization. And the most likely uh, candidate for that, according to the reports that have come out so far, is a North Korean agreement to completely dismantle the Yongbyon facility and all its associated components.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Um, So we've had all four of our researchers weigh in. To get things rolling, I actually have a question. Um, I'd like to know... What is most realistic to achieve during these summit discussions? Is it denuclearization, a peace treaty, or removal of sanctions on North Korea? And I'm wondering, Bruce, if you could um, address that question first.
0: Sure. Um, Well, first of all, as Andrew has said, we have to see some form of denuclearization. We have to remember that Uh, North Korea is an Asian country. When you deal with Asian countries, there are two parts of any kind of negotiating process. One part is building relationships, and then the second part is the substance of what you're trying to pursue. Uh, You need to build relationships so that you can get to the substance. Uh, President Trump has made a great deal about the relationship he's built with Kim Jong-un, and in that case, he's been relatively successful, far more than I think any of us anticipated. But he hasn't been as successful on the substantive side. There are no particular actions that North Korea is doing to reduce the severity of its nuclear weapon threat. Um, It's not even stabilizing its threat or freezing it. It's producing more nuclear weapons. It's going exactly the opposite direction from what Kim has promised. So the key here is President Trump has got to get some substantive outcomes. He's got to get something done. And as Mike has said, the most obvious case is with Yongbyon. Kim Jong-un has offered Yongbyon. Um, it's a case where we ought to be able to proceed with, uh, with inspecting, uh, closing down, and then eventually disassembling. But if North Korea is really making as many as 12 nuclear weapons per year, which some media sources suggest is the case, um, time is not on our side and Yongbyon may only be perhaps a third or so of that production. Um, we need to reach out beyond just the Yongbyon facility, and we need to make sure that all of Yongbyon is included, including the new reactor and the uranium enrichment facility there. So these are all specifics that we should be looking for in the agreement. Even if we get a total freeze of the North Korean nuclear weapon production facility, I would argue that's really not yet denuclearization, because the number of nuclear weapons stays static. They're not being reduced. Denuclearization means to reduce the threat, in my mind. Um, And in order to do that, Kim has got to be prepared to also start surrendering weapons. And we can't just get him to surrender weapons because if he surrenders three weapons but produces six more, uh, that's not denuclearization. So we have to be very clear that denuclearization first requires that you get a production freeze, and then you actually start the process of denuclearizing. Uh, finally, I would say on a peace agreement or peace uh, uh... declaration or whatever people want to call it end of war agreement there are two wars that have been fought in korea i would argue one is the hot war that was fought from nineteen fifty to nineteen fifty-three the second is the cold war that north korea has pursued since nineteen fifty-three Uh, All of the discussion on an end-of-war agreement is about the hot war from 1950 to 1953. But you don't get peace if North Korea continues its indoctrination of its people that the Americans are their eternal and absolute enemy. You don't get peace if they keep training, even in nursery school, their children to bayonet American soldiers. You don't get peace if they continue building nuclear weapons. Um, To get peace, you've got to have a broader agreement that ends the Cold War and not just the old hot war. Um, And so in my mind, you have to extend the nature of what's being addressed there. Let's not just end the old hot war. There are some potential negative consequences of that that I don't think we want to go to unless we're going to get real peace.
1: Well, thank you for that Bruce. I think Naoko would like to respond. Yes. Well, actually I just wanted to add um, your point uh, to your point about Yonbyon and about talk a little bit about what the closure of Yonbyon really means. So, I think it's it's useful to think of North Korea's nuclear threat as Um, there are three major groupings. One is their ability to make fuel for nuclear weapons. Second is the um, nuclear weapons that they've already built. They have already made them. They exist. And the third um, is the delivery system. So these are missiles. And what the Nyonbyon Nyonbyon closure does is to constrain the first part, but it does nothing for the second or third. So And by constrain, I mean, well, that doesn't stop North Korea's ability to um, make fuel, nuclear fuel, completely. So um, that's a that's a good start, but it's, it should not be the end at all. Mike, did you want to weigh in on that as well?
3: I, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's you know, it's only a start. Um, I think my thought on this for a while has been: um, there's absolutely no way we're going to get denuclearization in a comprehensive way in the medium-term future. North Korea has too many security concerns to make that happen. So as from where we were a year and a half ago when we were talking about military options, I think we have come a fair way. North Korea's uh, decision to suspend further tests of nuclear weapons and missiles has been helpful to keep uh, the tensions under control. As Bruce stresses, that does not mean that they have stopped their development of their nuclear program. So, but if a next step included something really concrete I mean, as far as we know, uh, Yongbyon has, of course, the, the operating reactor where they get plutonium and the one um, unquestionable uh, uranium uh, production facility that we know of. There is at least one other rumored one. If we take that away from North Korea, it significantly impacts their ability to um, to build weapons. And if... If we take that step and then continue with a number of additional steps over the next several years, we are moving in the right direction, and I think that's the best we can hope for.
1: Okay. Lisa, would you like to uh, add a question or offer a question?
4: Yeah, um, and I'll throw this one out. I I think I'd like to start with uh, Mike on this one. Uh, One of Kim's goals appears to be getting the U.S. military forces off the peninsula. He's called for the halting of U.S. military drills while at the same time continuing North Korean drills. If the U.S. were to withdraw, what would be the effect on our other allies in the region? Would other countries want to start developing their own nuclear capacity?
3: I, don't, uh, I think it, it just depends on the circumstances, it depends on how it comes about. Um, I, first of all, I do not anticipate that the United States in any uh, outcome of this summit would announce a withdrawal of all U.S. forces from South Korea. I think that's a precipitous step that we wouldn't expect at this point. Uh, saying that that's uh, something that we could expect in the future might be something they could do. Uh, a critical aspect of the context is, first of all, is the alliance still in place? Is there still a formal alliance, even if there are many fewer U.S. troops on the ground? The fact is, there are always going to be some U.S. military personnel in South Korea, as long as they're an alliance. So it's a misnomer to say that everything, I think, would be withdrawn. A critical aspect of the context would be how South Korea uh, announces and deals with it. Um, If it is part of a peacemaking process that the South Korean government applauds and says they are comfortable with, that makes a significant difference. And if the concessions that are coming out of North Korea are very real, and if I think also the nuclear concessions are combined with additional measures to reduce the threat of conventional war. So from my perspective, if U.S. forces are going to come off the peninsula, we have to have some reduction in forward-deployed North Korean military forces in a verifiable way. If you get that, then it's the, the overall situation is more safe. So I think the answer to the question is, It would not at all surprise me if in the next five years or so, we're looking at a process that leads to some reduction in US forces in South Korea. Uh, If that happens in the right way, it can be stabilizing and perfectly safe.
1: Well, I'd like to also know based on that, if if we have these restrictions, what are the realistic outcomes or what should we expect are realistic outcomes from this summit? Um, from President Trump's vantage, Malcolm, if you have any thoughts on that? Um, well, I think the realistic outcome from the Hanoi summit um, for concrete steps—they're they're not going to be—they're um, going to be small steps. I think that—that's what we can hope for. Mainly because, yes, for example, the peace agreement. Yes, that would have to be part of the ultimate, um, if there is to be a solution to the North Korean nuclear problem, that would have to be a part of it. But that's going to also mean a a significant reduction of the nuclear threat from North Korea, which is going to take a long time. So it's one thing to offer an end of war declaration, for example, a political declaration. And even with that, I think that there should be a strategy um and in with regard to the timing of what you know to offer them uh if you're going to offer them that are you getting enough in return but i guess my point is um whatever the outcome is on the hanoi summit i i do not expect um like a peace agreement or uh uh denuclearization again is a is going to take a long time and what about you andrew would you like to respond to that question
2: i think what we're what we've been talking about is, you know, what kind of deal is likely to come if, if any. Is there going to be an agreement coming out of this summit? And I think that's that's an open question. Uh, it's very un, um, hard to predict this. Uh, that, but there's two kind. There will be two two general kinds of agreements. One would be, you know, a small one or a big one. And a small one would mean something. Uh, and either way to be successful, either way. Either possibility could be a success, but the important important thing in either case is that uh, for either one is that, that there need to be specifics, it needs to be uh, concrete. You know, there needs to be a timeline, there needs to be agreements, uh, clear agreements on inspection and, and and so on. But a small agreement, what I mean by that, a small deal would mean maybe it's just about young uh, but that not, wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing if if it was uh, very clear and specific and and, and concrete. But a, a bigger uh, agreement would in, would be more comprehensive, a la grand bargain, perhaps, uh, with lots more moving parts, uh, and that could be you know that would be uh, easy in a sense easier to trumpet as as a success. But again, um, without specifics and and linkages. Uh, there might not be any there there because, as as we've already mentioned, what came out of the Singapore summit it was grandio uh, you know a grandiose statement of, of of intent but no specifics and and no and no uh, you know no no clear uh, commitments and timelines. And, and I think that it's important in this
0: context, as Andrew is suggesting, that a timeline be developed of where we're going. What is the end state we're trying to get to? Zero nuclear weapons in North Korea, from North Korea's perspective, recognition of North Korea, but not as a nuclear power as a country, with significant reduction in military forces and other adjustments which stabilize the region. I think that's what most countries in the region want to have, and we need to have a set of steps that are identified that North Korea agrees to that we're going to move through to get to that end state. Um, That's what I sense the administration is anxious to pursue and to lay out. I think North Korea is not anxious to do that because they want to get as many things as they can for as little as they have to give up. That's standard diplomacy, Um, And I think in this particular case, we've got to be much more specific about what the future course of action is going to be. Now, People will say, well, why not just have a peace declaration? Um, The problem with the peace declaration is it starts raising questions about the U.S. military presence in Korea. It says, well, if there's really peace, why do there need to be American troops in Korea? Whereas, of course, people usually don't say that about Europe, but in theory we have peace in Europe, and we still have American troops there. But in Korea, this is an often stated uh, item, and we have to then step back and say, what do we want to create as the conditions between now and the future? If there are no U.S. troops in Korea, or a very small number, Will, will South Korea feel comfortable with the U.S. nuclear umbrella that we've offered, or will South Korea perceive, eh, you can't count on the U.S. in that case because there aren't American military in jeopardy. Um, don't we need our own nuclear weapons? And there are plenty of groups in South Korea who have pushed to get nuclear weapons in South Korea for their own nuclear weapons. And if that happens, that's a regionally destabilizing and probably globally destabilizing event.
4: If being a nuclear power is the only leverage that uh, Kim Jong-un has, what would convince him to give up nuclear weapons? I mean, he has tremendous bragging rights right now because he can claim that he's a nuclear power. What else has he got? He's got nothing else. So is it even realistic for anybody to expect that he would give up that kind of power, he doesn't have any other power. Or am I missing something, Andrew? Any ideas?
2: Well, I think we shouldn't ignore the fact that there is a significant uh, conventional uh, military capability that North Korea has, uh, and especially if you're sitting in Seoul, <laughs> uh, um, you know, then then that uh, you're in many ways more worried about that than uh, six thousand artillery tubes yeah. sitting right across the DMZ. Then you are about nuclear, but yes, uh, you know, if you're if you're the leader of North Korea, your economy may be improving somewhat, but you're basically a basket case. So what do you have to be, you know, to your point, what do you have to be proud of? Uh, nuclear, you know, you're a nuclear power. You join the nuclear club. Um, and, but also I, my sense of North Koreans and North Korean leadership is that they are quite insecure. And so uh, <clears throat> when you're surrounded by, from their perspective, you know, larger powers—Japan, China, Russia, the United States, and, and allies—and you know, nuclear n- nuclear weapons looks uh, looks like a pretty um, a, a, a pretty important uh, capability to have uh, to to make yourself feel more secure that uh, as a deterrent, less likely to be attacked by another another power. So, exactly, why why would you give it up? And, and so going back to what I was saying earlier, you know, maybe their definition of denuclearization is a little bit different and really more closer to a freeze. Now that's it's, it's, in a sense it's heresy to talk about a freeze because we've the United States and other and the international community has been so laser focused on denuclearization, um, but a freeze uh, with with appropriate inspections and you know. Uh, uh, Monitoring and monitoring would not would not be such a terrible outcome. Uh, it would certainly, of course, be far short of, of denuclearization, but I think it would be a step forward from what we have today.
1: So we're you know we talked about what might be the outcomes or the the best case scenario for the United States. What is the best case scenario for North Korea? What do we think Kim Jong Un is hoping to achieve in this? Summit, Michael.
3: Well, yeah. I think the question we just heard gets to it a bit. I think it's it's absolutely right to say that um, his uh, that, that North Korea believes that nuclear weapons are essential for their survival, and that their achievement of what they are at least publicly billing as uh, sort of an adequate nuclear deterrent is to this point maybe Kim Jong Un's fundamental accomplishment and the thing he can kind of advertise. So I think as as um, Bruce. Andrew have have both implied. I think what they're going to be looking for is the opportunity to give some concession that begins to break down the sanctions regime um, that promotes stability on the peninsula, because I think there's not a lot of evidence that Kim Jong-un is actively considering military aggression against South Korea, uh, and they certainly fear aggression from the United States, so reducing tensions is good for them. Um, And opening the way to what he has clearly stated for at least a year now and, and more as his priority, which is developing the economy of North Korea. So I think their ideal outcome is preserving some residual nuclear deterrent indefinitely while having the sanctions go away gradually and creating the basis for more investment in North Korea, South Korean investment, Chinese assistance. Um, And then Kim Jong-un can tell his people, we're deterring the Americans and we've got a great economy. It seems to me that's kind of an ideal outcome
1: for them. Mm -hmm. Malcolm, Sure. Um, Well, basically, Kim Jong-un said after the last um, missile test in November 2017, the most powerful um, missile that they tested, that now their nuclear deterrent is... Basically, complete. And that was after that he changed his um, sort of shifted gears and emphasized, started emphasizing economic development. So, North Korea has had a plan, and um, that I, I agree with Mike in terms of what their plan is.
0: I think you have to add, though, that um, what North Korea wants out of this summit is clearly from their own statements over the last four months or so is sanctions relief. Um, And this is not about feeding the poor people in North Korea. Uh, North Korea during the famine in the 1995 to 98 time frame, uh, many of the elites were observing the hostile class in your political uh, caste system in North Korea. You have the hostile class, the wavering class, and the elite class. The senior elites were watching the hostile class because the hostile class was being starved. And uh, they very much wanted to make sure there wasn't going to be a rebellion. Uh, They were very surprised to discover that some people in the hostile class were actually doing okay. Not really well, but they weren't starving. And they discovered those people were entrepreneurs. Um, That wasn't supposed to be happening. Uh, because this was a public distribution system, a socialism, um, and yet these people were doing okay. And many of the elites, I am told, said, oh, wow, you know, they have to pay off the security services to make this work. We could do the same thing, and we know the security people. Sometimes they're even members of our own families. Um, we could become independent of the regime. Um, And so by today, 20 years later, you have many capitalists in North Korea, especially among the elites. Those people don't want sanctions, and they are putting, from all indications I get, severe pressure on Kim Jong-un to get sanctions relief. Uh, He's gone to China now, as, as Andrew stated earlier, four times to talk with uh, President Xi and uh, promised his elites that he would get sanctions relief. Uh, He came back with next to nothing in each case. Uh, So he's under some pretty serious pressure to let the businessmen of North Korea do what they want to do. Um, The question, though, we have to ask is how far in that direction does he want to go? because entrepreneurs, capitalists, or whatever you want to call them, are independent to a certain extent. And that independence is not what Kim likely wants. He wants people doing what he tells them to and not being independent. And as long as they're doing business, they're also bringing information into North Korea. And that information can be poisonous to the regime. So the regime is, I think, going to want to be careful with that as well.
1: Well, Bruce, you just brought up China's role in all of this. Uh, It's significant, and they do have economic leverage over North Korea. But right now, what, what do you think China, the leadership of China, is thinking about this upcoming summit? Are they supportive of it, or are they wary of what might occur? Andrew, would you like to weigh in on that one?
2: Sure. I, I think you've uh, accurately characterized how I, uh, how I think uh, China's uh, approaching this, wary and, and hopeful. Uh, this is a good – the decrease in tensions has been warmly welcomed um, by China. Uh, but at the same time, China's cons- – and, hope- and also hopeful that there's going to be a positive outcome in, uh, f- from the Hanoi summit. But China's also wary, concerned that, uh, about being sidelined. Uh, are marginalized in this, and so uh, while they do, uh, the, they, like to, they like to see an improve, improving relations between uh, Washington and Pyongyang, uh, they view themselves as being, uh, this is their sphere of influence, this is on their, North Korea is on their doorstep, and, and technically North Korea is, is an ally of China um, by the na- a 1961 treaty, uh, so they very much see China, uh, China sees North Korea as their uh, as, as w- within their sphere of influence uh, and and so uh, you know it 's noteworthy uh, that uh, the the four summits we 've seen uh, between um, Xi Jinping and, and Kim jong un have been very closely uh, correlated uh, with The first summit uh, uh, between uh, uh, President Trump and and Kim Jong-un, and then the the three were clustered. The three meetings last year were clustered around uh, two before the summit in in Singapore, one after. And then the most recent, the fourth meeting uh, uh, between uh, the North Korean and Chinese leaders, happened last month, I think no coincidence, uh, just before... The Hanoi summit. So this is where this, these meetings are important uh, for North Korea to say uh, to keep China in the loop, reassure China, and and and, and get benefits uh, in, in exchange for uh, consulting with China. Uh, but they're also important for China uh, to weigh in and, and uh, feel comfortable that or more comfortable that their views uh, are, are being uh, taken into account. Their interests are being taken into account by North Korea.
4: I want to piggyback on that, Andrew? What kind of leverage does North Korea have over China?
2: That, that's that's a really a good question. I think there's an assumption uh, that many people have that you know China is so big and so economically powerful and and uh, you know has so many uh, you know the, the goodies to offer uh, North North Korea. It's the source of you know uh, uh, has been the source of of energy uh, a lot of. Um, raw materials, uh, including coal, things like coal that North Korea exports, uh, pretty much all of that is gone gone to China. Uh, so on paper, it would seem that uh, China holds not all the cards, but almost all the cards. And yet, uh, I would argue that North Korea has has. Uh, Played its weak hand very very well and and actually been in the in the driver's in, in the driver's seat in uh, uh, managing its relationship with with, with China, uh, but on the just one last point about North Korea, um, you know they are insecure they do want that m- maintain that nuclear deterrent, and yes they don't trust the United States but they don't trust anybody including the Chinese um, so. Uh, Part of the 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 uh, summit uh, the, the summit is about uh, improving North Korea's options uh, so that they're not not as reliant or dependent on on China.
1: I think that this has been extremely informative, and we thank our RAND researchers for participating today. And with that, I think that we can bring this call to an end. Thank you, everybody, for your participation.
0: Thank you. Thanks. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.